It's one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. But unlike the phone, the car, computers and indoor plumbing, the weekend is still stuck in the 1930s. As productivity increased, the promise of shorter working hours always seemed just out of reach. 60% of us have experienced mental health issues due to our work. Greater and longer working hours doesn't necessarily mean that we're more productive. Workers in Germany, for example, could actually stop working on a Thursday and yet still produce more than we do. But now, there's a campaign to make the four-day week a reality within our lifetimes. Some companies are testing a four-day work week to see if it makes employees more productive. Four-day week. I, I mean, the moment I heard this, I thought, oh, God, here we go. It's like, let's all just get lazy. Obviously, many people would love to work less. But what would it mean for the economy? And what would it take to make it a reality? In this academic sort of sense, like, wouldn't it be better if? But how does it affect the bottom line? It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Our inability to make more in less time is what lies behind the latest grim productivity forecasts. So we've sent Nina to a pasty factory in Bolton. Things haven't been great over the past decade. Our productivity has been lower than at any point in the 20th century. How realistic could a four-day week be? So we're back for a brand new series, brightening up your week as we descend into deepest, darkest winter. We're going to try and be a source of optimism and hope, as well as the usual top-notch economic analysis, and we're starting as we mean to go on. Here to chat about how to make the four-day week a reality is Alfie Sterling, Head of Economics here at the New Economics Foundation. Hello, Alfie. Hi there. I just remember that the last time you were on, do you remember, I was like, Head of Economics, and then I went, are you the Head of Economics? Yeah, you grilled me on my job quite a bit last <laughs> yeah, time. I, did. I just think that's a really funny title. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the analogy, analogy I used last time. No, but it was good. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was good, it wasn't was, it? Yeah, it was definitely good. Harvesting old jokes now, that's what we've got to. <laughs> also with us is Aidan Harper, who's a researcher at NEF and a member of the four-day week campaign. Hi, Aidan. Hiya, uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Okay, so we're going to dive in. Um, so I mentioned this a little bit in the intro, but let's start with the story of the weekend. So when did most people in the UK first get a two-day weekend? How did that go down, Aidan? So the story of the weekend is kind of like a story of capitalism more broadly. Um, and uh, Yeah, we all love it. <laughs> Always uh, interesting. <laughs> and at the heart of capitalism, I guess, is, is this wage relationship. We work hours and are given wages for it. This was a development. It's not something that we've always done. We used to make things and sell them, um, exchange them, all this sort of stuff. Mm. But the wage relationship and working to the hour was something which was new to capitalism. And particularly when the clock was invented and there's this whole kind of tyranny of the clock. Within that, there's always been a tension and a resistance from the side of workers against the owners of businesses. Mm. That tension, I guess we would broadly call a political tension, they contested time within their workplaces. And so when are, when are we talking from? So this is from the mid, kind of like 1700s. Okay. From that point, working hours increased drastically. Mm. Um, we kind of assume that working hours have kind of improved, you know, since the start of civilization. But actually, under industrial capitalism, they went up massively. Um, you know, some people were working up to 80-hour weeks. Workers organized, they pushed back, um, formed trade unions, um, and had explicit um, campaigns for working time reduction. And over time, those campaigns were successful. Political parties evolved policies, and we slowly moved towards an eight-hour day, a 40-hour week, a weekend. And then there was a general reduction in working time over the 20th century, and it stalled somewhat uh, towards the end of the 20th century, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm. So when did that happen? When did we get the weekend, or roughly? What's quite difficult about that is there wasn't 
legislation saying the weekend was created here. It mm-hmm. happened because of the way in which working time was contested. It happened uh, within sectors at different times. Okay. So where there was good organisation and where there was strong trade unions, they campaigned successfully for shorter hours. So mm-hmm. sometime in the early to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Such a great summary. Thank you, Aidan. Right. Uh, So on the other side of the coin, we've got productivity. I'm looking at you, Alfie. So it can be a bit of a vague concept. What do we mean by productivity? Yeah, and in some ways it doesn't really mean much, and people tend to get really kind of, you know, obsessed by productivity, especially economists, um, thinking about, you know, what is this thing? What is this mystical thing in the economy, productivity? But I think the simplest way of thinking about it is in terms of labour productivity, and that means for every hour of work that somebody does, how much is produced for that hour in the economy. Um, And so it tends to be measured, if you're measuring this in terms of like GDP and output, it's measured in pounds of output produced per hour worked. And what's a kind of a key thing to take away there is that it's kind of intimately related to time. Mm -hmm. So it is a unit that is per time. So as you change time, almost automatically productivity has to shift because time is part of the calculation. Mm. Can you explain that? Because on some level, I understand what you're saying. But if you give an example, that would be great. So, for example, if you have no change in how much you produce in a week in terms of just the amounts of goods, let's say you're making shoes mm-hmm. and you make 20 shoes in a week in a week. And then the next week you work one day less, but mm. you still make 20 shoes. Mm. Your productivity goes up. It goes yeah, up by, yeah, yeah. by a fifth. Mm-hmm. But your overall output hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So productivity doesn't necessarily mean producing more it means producing more per time put in. Interesting. Okay. But if, if you can just sum it up for us, what's been the kind of story of productivity over the last 100 years or so? Well, actually, I think the most interesting story is probably after World War II, because the, the, the wars themselves have had a big disruption on productivity and time and society more generally. So it's most interesting to look at what's happened in a kind of peacetime economy. There's a really striking kind of story of two halves post-war. So you kind of had about 30 years after 1945, where three things all kind of increased. One was productivity, another was wages, and another was leisure time. Mm -hmm. So all three of these were increasing for about 20, 30 years. And then something quite interesting happened at the end of the 1970s, going into the 1980s, which was that wages and productivity actually continued to rise, but leisure time just stalled. We basically started to get less time back from the economy. Workers got less time back, but they weren't remunerated in in any higher pay. So it's this quite... Striking question, really, which is why did that happen? What was the change, that pivot uh, from 1980, which saw this kind of this lack of remuneration uh, to workers in terms of getting time back from their employer? And what, what, what do you reckon that was? Do you have the answer? I think, no, I think the answer is really hard to kind of pin down definitively. Maybe Aidan uh, can share these mm-hmm. as well. But I think it's striking that you had total deregulation of the labour market from the 1980s That'll onwards. Do it. So, you know, unions lost their power to fight for workers, um, or at least rest- they were restricted. Uh, regulation around the number of hours could be worked per week shifted. Progress made on a number of different statutory entitlements all changed from the 1980s onwards. So, you know, it's kind of a smoking gun coincidence, maybe, but it's pretty striking that it coincided with this with this collapse in remuneration in time. And it's striking also when you compare to other countries. Germany has, although their trade union membership has declined somewhat, it's nowhere near the um, extent that it has in the UK. Mm-hmm. But if working time had decreased, because it was steadily decreasing over the period of the 20th century, if it had de- continued to decrease at the rate it had before, we would be on a, what was it? A- it's about, yeah, it's the, fun, it's the fun fact, isn't it, which is that if leisure time had continued to increase at the pace it did from post-war to 1980, if that had mm. carried on, we would work about half a day less 
um, wow. a week on average throughout the year. And that happens to be about annual working hours in Germany. So it's kind of this kind of like coincidence that if we'd continued our trend, mm. we would now be on level with Germany, but we're not. Mm. So you can absolutely see a kind of like a, a living experiment there in terms of trade union density and working time reduction. I want to stick with productivity for a second. And so, yeah, so since the 2009 financial crisis, mm. there's been a lot of stories about this, this idea that we're in a productivity crisis yeah. um, and something's going wrong there. So, Alfie, could you talk a little bit about that for a moment? Are we in a productivity crisis? What does that mean? Yeah, we are. And actually, the, the, the fun thing is there's probably two productivity crises, actually. So oh, the first one... Crises? Yeah. There's, there's what's Plural. called... The, the, there's loads of jargon here, but there's the, there's the productivity puzzle. Okay. Intriguing. Mm-hmm. And then there's the productivity gap. Ooh. And um, right noises. <laughs> and the um, the puzzle, you know, from the World War Two up to two thousand and eight, labour productivity, so the amount we produce per hour worked, rose at about two percent a year. So every year we were basically getting more out for what we were putting in by about two percent every year. But then since two thousand and eight, it's collapsed to by about two thirds. We get about zero point six percent productivity growth. Um, and it's really unclear as to why exactly that's happened. There's been loads of theorising, loads of economists kind of looking at different bits of data. But in truth, they haven't found an answer for mm. why that happened. Um, and it's really striking. So that's the puzzle. The gap is that notwithstanding all these historical trends, we've got a massive gap with other European countries. So for the, doing the same work in the UK, same types of occupations, we produce a lot less. And there are different narratives and theories behind each one, but those are the two crises in productivity that the UK faces. One is quite recent, post-2008. The other one's very long, uh, long-term. We've been producing less than other European countries for a long, long time, decades. So if you both absolutely had to come up with your own theories for why, what's driving that, what, do you, what would you say? So there was a, um, a lot of activity after 2008 kind of amongst policymakers and research saying, oh, it must be something to do with, with workers. Yeah. They're, not, they're not skilled enough or they're not able to move to the right jobs. So these kind of supply side theories, I'd say it's something wrong with the supply of labour. But it increasingly looks like that's just not right. And the reason for that is that a big part of the problem that you can now see in the data since, since the, basically the Office for National Statistics, looking at a kind of counterfactual world where productivity carried on growing and then looked at the world as it currently is today and looked at the difference in, in firm activity compared to the two. And they found that one of the big problems was firm investment. So firms were not actually investing in things to make workers more productive, um, mm-hmm. whether that's kind of equipment and machinery, the, the kind of things we might think of typically in manufacturing. But this also includes other things like just business practices and running a firm in a good way. Mm. And instead, what firms were doing were doing a lot more outsourcing. So we were getting lots of flexible, insecure labour, whether it's zero contracts or self-employment or even actually lots of self-employed people setting up micro firms. This, this extreme outsourcing was much less efficient. Mm-hmm. So it was good for a firm that didn't want to take on the risk of having employees because mm-hmm. um, they didn't have to pay the, the overheads and they also weren't committed to paying these people a wage if things went downhill. But it was bad for productivity because every little transaction was having to have you know contracts, negotiation, uncertainty. Um, and it looks like this was key. Um, it probably didn't okay. explain the whole thing, but it was, it was definitely important. Mm. It's also, there are more specific things as well to the UK. So the particular you know, response from government after 2010 austerity, mm-hmm. the pulling out of spending in the economy from government had a big impact. It hit the confidence of firms. It meant firms lost confidence in being able to invest in productivity raising measures. And then after that, the 2016 referendum um, to lead the EU again hit, hit firm confidence. Mm-hmm. So if you have these major events one after the other and you've got firms sitting there thinking, well, I can either just outsource to a cheap, insecure worker, yeah. don't take on the risk, or I can invest for the future, 
but then they're looking at the future and thinking, hmm, hang on a minute, I don't know what this is bringing. Mm-hmm. And often there's this kind of narrative that, you know, the robots are coming for our jobs and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the UK, that's just not happening. We're not investing in, in automation. Robots aren't taking people's jobs. And that does have an effect on, on productivity. Fascinating. Okay, let's talk about the shorter working week. So in a nutshell, other than what we've discussed so far, what are some of the kind of key arguments for shortening the working week? When you're out there, you're flyering, you're getting people on board joining the campaign, what are your slogans? What are you saying? Well, it really does depend who you're talking to. <laughs> but from, uh, from I think, an initial point of view, I think that as, as humans, we have a right to time that we can call our own. We should never forget that. And that's kind of the heart of what the campaign is. It's that right. But beyond that, there are a series of massive benefits that working time reduction can bring about. So our current model of working time currently operates as a barrier to a greater distribution of unpaid work outside of the workplace. There are an increasing number of young fathers who want to, for example, spend more time at work and bring up their kids. But their workplace... Pardon? Away from work. Away, Away from yeah, work. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, but, they're, but they're having trouble moving down their hours mm-hmm. because their workplace is subsequently um, inflexible. And also you have this kind of issue with usually women, because um, care work is highly gendered, who are looking to get into work but can't find you know, types of hours which are suitable to um, fitting around care and therefore either find part-time, low-paid, inse- likely to be insecure work with few opportunities for advancement within the workplace rather than good, secure, full-time work on shorter hours. And so within the workplace, it means that you create a condition whereby women are less paid, more insecure, unhappier, really. Mm -hmm. And then you also have this kind of like block for men um, not being able to reduce their hours. Obviously, our current model of working time is a barrier to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also a lot of arguments around sustainability and working time as part of a sustainable lifestyle and a sustainable economy. Um, so generally, on a day-to-day basis, um, the most carbon-intensive things that we do are commuting and eating. With more time, you can walk or cycle instead mm-hmm. of driving. Um, you can also cook with fresh ingredients rather than energy-intensive frozen food products. Mm-hmm. Um, you can spend time fixing that hole in your trousers that you haven't had time to <laughs> rather than buying new ones. You know, this type of thing. That's the main thing I need to do, to be fair. <laughs> exactly. We never, we never have time to do, to do things which are actually kind of good for the environment and, mm. um, and low carbon. But also, like, we never have time to do things which are low carbon but incredibly good for us, like building relationships, self-education. These things are kind of inherently low carbon, but we never really have time to engage in them. So, yeah, sustainability, gender equality, economic benefits... And then just kind of like individual happiness. These are the kind of the key arguments as to why we should. I mean, it's kind of everything. Really. Yeah, I mean, pretty strong arguments. I'm, I was, <laughs> if I wasn't on board before, which I was, I am now. Um, OK, so I'm sure that we could talk more about the, the kind of case for it. What are some of the main criticisms that you both have heard around this idea of shortening the working week? I think one of the, the most important issue is low paid, insecure work, mm-hmm. particularly since um, the recession and since the implementation of austerity outsourcing all the rest of it which has um, led to an underpaid overworked or in many or in, in, in lots of cases underworked workforce and thinking practically about how you reduce the hours of people who are often looking for more work or who won't be able to afford yeah. to reduce their hours with a with a cut and pay with people that might not have secure contracts you know th- those are the types of people who should be placed at the heart of any move towards a world of less work but if we were to kind of come back at that, can I come back at the, the come point? Back, yeah. Okay, so um, so there are arguments around redistribution of work and the creation of new work. 
the old, one of the old trade union arguments is that you reduce working time in order to create new jobs. It kind of makes sense, right? Especially if you don't increase productivity to the extent that you've reduced working time, you end up creating a need within a workplace or an economy for new jobs. And those jobs can be well-paid, they can be secure, they can have opportunities for further development, all the rest of it. And that should be seen as a good thing. Mm. And we know that when France implemented their 35-hour week, I think the most accurate estimates are around about 350,000 new jobs were created. Mm. And we can think about that in relation to low-paid, insecure work in our economy by creating new jobs that these people can step into, Mm. away from low-paid, insecure work into higher-paid, secure work. Is the idea around the four-day working week that people would be paid the same and just do less hours or that they would be paid less? The demand has always been... That they'd be paid the same. That you'd be paid the same. Okay, because it certainly seems like if you were arguing for a shorter working week, but people actually get paid less, then mm. most people wouldn't take it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's completely fundamental that pay is protected. It yeah. can't be a trade-off between pay and time. But not least because when we, you know after World War II, we saw both increasing. So mm. there's no kind of law of nature that says that people shouldn't be remunerated in terms of both. I mean, stepping back a bit as well to the kind of just because I think there's an important point here about why leisure time is so special in an economy, why it's such a special way to for people to, to benefit. And that's because if the more and more we kind of collapse and reduce everyone's benefits from the economy in terms of money, the more we just kind of become increasingly enslaved to capitalist structures, to consumption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And time is really special because it's something that isn't just denominated in money. It's, yeah. it's not yeah. a, you know, it's, you can't go and spend it. You can just use it for the things you want to use it for. Uh, I think that's really important. In terms of the um, the kind of criticism, I think there are probably three main criticisms. One, as Aidan kind of pointed out, is it can often look like a middle class indulgent. All yeah, those of indulgence. Yeah, All yeah. those people have got the hours. Great, yeah, they can they can, they can take the car and then yeah. Um, but there are lots of people who, who are struggling. Um, another is that well, what about firms? Aren't they going to see a massive increase in costs? And then the third is that you know, as we were talking about earlier, the UK's got a productivity problem. So surely we should be waiting to get productivity back before we start remunerating in time. Those are probably three of the things you mm-hmm. tend to hear as mm-hmm. criticisms. And are you going to solve? Are you going to solve them? So um, <laughs> give us back, get back sass like Aiden. So yeah, on the, on the first of those, I think Aiden's point right, which is, which is that firstly you shouldn't force anyone to work less than they want to. Every choice is really important. Mm. We should be getting away from rigid ideas of forcing everyone to work a certain number of days a week, but increasing choice. But to the extent that people working a lot do reduce their hours, that will create space and create jobs for those that want to take on more hours. So it's actually a redistribution question mm. rather than a kind of t- directive telling everyone to stop working or start working. In terms of firm costs, yeah, it will increase the cost for firms, but it will also increase spending power in the economy because everyone's still got the same amount of pay and they've got a bit more leisure time uh, Mm. to spend it. And so firms can take advantage of that by improving their productivity. Um, It's the same, you know, this idea of firm costs is the same argument we heard about the minimum wage, the same argument we heard about, you know, abolishing slavery. It gets to a point where there isn't a level of firm costs that need to be in place to make sure people get what they need from the economy. Mm. And then in terms of productivity, it kind of links back to the, this point I was just making about more spending. If we think that a lack of demand in the economy because of austerity, because of um, Brexit, is a key part of this story, this puzzle for why we've seen collapse in productivity growth, there are a few things you could do that would be more effective than just allowing people time off to spend their salaries mm-hmm. and to give firms confidence that their, that their products and services will be bought. Mm. Um, so it actually becomes a solution to the productivity puzzle as well as a way to make sure that it's, the proceeds of productivity are shared fairly. And also coming back on the on the point about firms, there are already existing 
um, organizations who have moved to a four-day week or, yeah. um, who, without a cut in pay. Admittedly, a lot of these um, companies are office-based work. There's a hell of a lot of time wasting in offices, something like oh, yeah. 40 to 60% of mm. the office average. Podcasts, biscuits, (laughs) water cooler chat, yeah, yeah. And and people have found that if you reorganise time within these organisations, you can save that wasted time and uh, increase the happiness of your staff, increase productivity um, to the extent that the hours have been cut. But obviously that comes different when you start thinking about how to increase productivity in things like social care if you're a security guard if you're a cleaner like it it won't happen in the same way Mm. okay so there are good examples that we can draw on and there's also been a few proposals from the labor party and the green party among others for how to practically make a four-day week happen so can you talk us through the plans and maybe some other kind of strengths and weaknesses of what's in the pipeline well, I think it's fair to say that for the Labour Party, they've kind of got two prongs to their to their strategy. And it's important to remember as well, that in the case of Labour, they're not actually saying, let's get to a four-day week. Mm. They're saying, let's reduce the average number of hours that everyone works. So it's not saying, hey, you, um, Aisha, you've got to work four days next week mm-hmm. and you can't do anything else. It's just saying, across the piece, mm-hmm. let's make sure that average hours go from currently about 37 hours a week down to 32 uh, okay. by the time it gets to 2030. And that could mean that some people working less than that increase, but it'll be more than offset by people working a lot more, reducing them. Ah, I see. So the average overall... So it's the average across the economy. So Mm -hmm. it's a distinction because it comes back to this point about choice and the fact that it's about redistribution as well as reducing the average amount of time spent working. But yeah, the two prongs that Labour appear to have adopted are firstly, increased power for sectoral bargaining. So going back to actually what Aidan was saying about after World War II, the role of unions um, in making sure that, that work has got you know, more time off from work in return for higher productivity. Labour want to see that repeated and they want to see unions sector by sector being able to nego- having stronger powers to negotiate across sectors for, for new deals. Um, and that's really important because different settlements on time will be different for different sectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you work in a factory, it's a very different type of work to working in an office and it won't be a one size fits all. The other policy is to create a new body that's basically like the Low Pay Commission, which is the body that recommends increases in the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So 20 years ago, uh, Low Pay Commission said everyone should have a minimum wage. 20 years on, we're saying that we should also every year recommend increases in statutory paid leave. So the amount of statutory holiday you have in a year should go up year on year. And this independent body should be tasked with the job of saying to government, hey, make sure this is happening. Mm. And so between the two, between sectors being able to negotiate shorter weeks and between giving people more holiday, that's how you get to your um, reduced average hours of 32 hours a week. Mm. Yes. So... But with the thing that you suggested with the um, the body, would yeah. would the idea be, behind that be that the working day, the holiday days, are exponentially increased forever? So you would definitely. I mean, at the moment we're we're way behind where we could be in terms mm. of having more more holidays. So the rest of the Europe average is between like about thirty three, thirty four, right up to forty um, mm. days of paid leave off every year. So we're not at a place yet. We have to worry about that that ceiling. What we recommended was there'd be kind of two phases. So the first phase would say this body would basically want to recommend increasing paid leave as fast as possible, subject to not increasing unemployment. Mm. So it's very similar to the mandate that's currently given to the low pay commissions. They do all this economic analysis, they look at the economy and try and work out how much extra leave can we create every year to do that. So basically just say, do as much as you can without causing harm somewhere else. Mm. That's the first phase. Once that's been kind of maxed out, the, the mandate or the kind of the instruction to this body would switch and it would basically say, okay, just watch and monitor natural productivity rises in the economy. And then in, you know, in, in line with those productivity increases, 
increases recommend sustainable increases in statutory leave. So there's no kind of, it's not saying do it as fast as possible, just saying monitor, look at the evidence and then recommend as, as productivity rises to make sure that workers are getting time off as well as high pay. Mm, yeah. Anecdotally, I was in Belgium last weekend and a woman who I met there who is a public sector worker had 35 days of holiday and then one day for every day that she'd done at the at the hospital she worked at and she had something like 56 days of holiday a year. <laughs> and I, she was like, it oh. was amazing. And I couldn't even imagine it. That's amazing. I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, uh, Labour, Greens, what do you think? I mean, it's a... It must not be underestimated about how big this statement from Labour is in terms of mm. working time reduction policy. It's the most radical in the world at this at this point in time. And certainly since France's 35-hour week, one of the most radical proposals in the last 50, 60 years. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a real statement of intent. I, I think some of the issues that are coming out of it are are things like... Uh, more thinking needs to be done about the sectoral bargaining agreements and how working time reduction can be wired into those. It's kind of at this moment assumed that it will it will happen, but how will that work in practice and and the detail of that I think needs fleshing out a little bit and that will need work with trade unions. Also, the the they, they've made a promise that um, they will reduce working hours to, on average thirty two within ten years. I think there's another question around: Are these two prongs that Alfie's described? enough to reduce working time at the speed with which a kind of a 10-year um, limit to 32 hours um, promises. Like I, that's questionable as well. Mm. Um, but what's important is, is a door has been thrown wide open. And now, um, going back to my first point about working time being political, working time is now deeply political. Political parties are talking about it. Serious policies are coming up. Unions are engaged with the issue. People are expecting a reduction in working time. And now there is the space through which we can talk about other ways through which we can claim back our lives um, from from the kind of tyranny of work in a, in a real and practical way. So we have this idea of kind of the tyranny of work and we want to free ourselves and have more leisure time and go swimming and all that great stuff. And also, I feel like, especially since the 1980s and neoliberalism and, and our, our relationship with, cha- with work has intentionally been changed or has changed and more and more people essentially see it as part as a um, really integral part of themselves rather than something that's abstracted like going to a factory and making shoes and so how does this kind of uh, idea of the four-day working week and people cutting back their hours kind of I guess bump up against that change in how we relate to work that's yeah I think this is this again goes back to um, again a history of really boring history of capitalism no, love and, it. Lay it <laughs> um, on me. And this idea of um, what was called the Protestant work ethic, mm. um, um, which a, a thinker, um, sociologist called uh, Max Weber talked a lot mm. about. And this is the idea that work itself moved from being something that we do and work took on this religious significance to become an end in and of itself. Something we are rather than that we do. E- exactly. And it, so it became um, like... Um, I mean, he he has this whole, it's like a really mm-hmm. fascinating book, but it's it shows how culture is so wrapped up in our history and our story of work. And this notion that people really identify with the work that they do, I don't think we should judge people that do that at all, mm. but it's certainly something which should be up for debate and we should talk about the alternatives to the tyranny of work. And we have this kind of, I mean, we see it every day. There's so many stories that we can talk about that the way that we... Um, when you ask someone, "Oh, what do you do?" the first thing that you ca- comes out of your mouth is your job, like as if like you identify through like mm-hmm. your personality through your work. Mm. If we think about 
the way that education, um, our schooling, our commute, our lives are, are oriented around this notion of work. Um, if we think about celebrities and, you know, those kind of like little interviews that they have where they describe their daily routine, where they get up at 4 a.m., go to mm. the gym, answer emails <laughs> for two hours. You know, have the, they have these impossible routines. You have people like Elon Musk who constantly eulogize about how how hard and how often they work even to the extent where he'll have a mental breakdown and still not recognize that it's tied up to how much work he has mm -hmm. um, but what's really interesting is i think the more you have this type of work um, where work is the center of everything the more you do kind of tie yourself to it and enjoy it so americans have famously have very little time off. Yeah, they're um, like 10 days holidays. Yeah, it's awful, that, zero maternity leave. And what happens there is you, you also really interestingly have people who are really satisfied with work. Whereas mm -hmm. in Germany, as we've talked about, they have lots of annual leave, um, low weekly working hours or the rest of it. Germans have some of the lowest job satisfaction in Europe. They hate work. And I think that's because what? if you create the conditions through, if you create a, a sphere outside of work, you realise how important your but ability But that sounds to, bad. I'm freaked out now. I thought we were getting somewhere and now it seems like what you're saying is if we have more time outside of work, we'll hate work more. Is Alfie, that... what do we do? <laughs> well, I actually, no, I actually think your initial question was a really good one, which is that mm. there's a lot of people, and it goes back to this kind of whole one size doesn't fit all and there is no silver bullet. And, mm. and when we talk about reduced work time, it is different for different people. And mm. so there's a whole group of people, as you described, who are working in kind of, you know, either flexible hours mm. or self-employment. And actually, for them, the biggest constraint on you know them getting satisfaction from their work isn't that they haven't got control over the number of hours if they wanted to exercise it is that they're just not paid enough yeah. so they have to do the hours mm -hmm. so where they paid enough they already have that power to say well okay well I won't work Friday because I'm self-employed mm -hmm. but because they're not paid enough they've got to work Friday Saturday and, and maybe Sunday sometimes so that's why um, you've got to have different policies for different um, types of people and I think that one of the advantages of the statutory leave policy is that it, it, it kind of dissipates in a way that does um, uh, help everyone. So if you're on a, on a contract, it legally uh, obviously helps you. If you're on zero-hour contract, what happens there is employers have to pay you your statutory leave on top of your salary. So the minimum, minimum wage basically just increases, which means people can then do fewer hours if they want to, mm. um, to take more time off. And for the self-employed, what it does is it raises standards in the economy as a whole. So if the expectation now is that people are taking longer holidays, they're working shorter weeks because people are taking the statutory leave, that shifts the norms and the cultures for self-employed as well and means that self-employed people can demand higher wages because everyone else is costing employers more as well because of the increased statutory leave. So it's about... Yeah, it's about flexibility, different different solutions for different problems and, and changing cultural norms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with a 30-second, super quick. We're looking into the future. We're putting on our future goggles, whatever they are. Uh, so it's 50 years down the line, and we've got a three-day weekend. In 30 seconds, how did it happen? How did it happen? Aiden, go. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> how did it happen? How yeah. did we get there? How did we get there? I mean, if we look at the last three years and how quickly things have moved on, um, I think 50 years is maybe, you know, that's a bit pessimistic, really. We've already had a 10-year oh, wow. promise. So why, why, the yeah, why, why, don't we, why don't we do that? Um, I, I think people join trade unions, they get involved in their workplaces, they challenge their bosses, they challenge the structures of work, and they create new norms and expectations. And over time, sector by sector, um, we move towards a world of short hours. Love it. Alfie? Yeah, I think you can get bogged down in the policy and it's probably not end of the day about the policy. It's mm. just about people basically in the end demanding it as, as a right, mm. um, access to time and access to control it. Um, and if, it, if we do get there, that'll be why. And the policy will just come later. 
Mate, that was less than 30 seconds. So impressive. Okay, wonderful. I think we're done for now. Uh, so, Alfie Sterling and Aidan Harper, thank you so much for joining me for this debut episode of the Week Economics Podcast, Back in Business. If people want to join the campaign or read your work or just generally hang out with or around you, how can they do that? Well, there's the four-day week Twitter, which is at four-day underscore week. We post a lot of updates. We've also got a website. Get involved, yeah. to sign up. Great. We do great. our best to pontificate online, so yeah, <laughs> you'll find us. Lovely. Alfie? The same. same? Yeah, yeah. just general pontification on social media. Okay. Um, Look out for general pontification and at four-day... Underscore week. <laughs> underscore week. Okay, great. <laughs> awesome. So that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, lovely listener, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Bye.